This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. When you find silver on the foreshore, very often it's absolutely black, it's absolutely thick, especially it's old, it's very, very thick with tarnish. So it was this black ring I found on the foreshore, didn't think much of it, cleaned it up when I got home, and inside, inscribed, is the words, I live in hope. And now, early posy rings were often usually written in French, and from the 16th century, they started to write them in English. And the style of the writing is what dates it as well. So um, anything that's made of a precious metal has to, by law, be reported to the coroner and recorded as treasure. So I took it to the Museum of London. It was recorded as treasure. It was shown to the British Museum and they've got one almost exactly the same in their collection. So that's how they could date it to the 16th century. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't feel right. I mean, it's too big for me, but it kind of doesn't feel right to wear it. You do wonder if the original owner did run out of hope. I don't know. It would be a bit sad. We find lots of love, love tokens in the river. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. This morning we're heading down to the river. As I'm in London, we're going down to the Thames and we're going mudlarking. Now, mudlarkers were originally described in the 19th century as boys who roamed around the sides of the river at low tide to pick up coals, bits of rope, bones and copper nails that fall while a ship is being repaired. But recently, mudlarking has become fashionable. Lara Maitland, who I'm going to speak to later, has published a book which has been on the bestseller list for ages called Mudlarking Lost and Found on the River Thames. And she's garnered a wide audience not least Hollywood A-lister Stanley Tucci. Indeed, Lara finds historical items from Romans or Vikings or Georgian London and digs back into their history to understand what they are, how they were used and how the people lived. But we're going to start going down to the river with jeweller Ruth Tomlinson, who regularly mudlarks, picks up pieces and indeed her time capsule ring featuring beads, glass, shell and rusted metal all picked up from the river is now on show in London's Victoria and Albert Museum. So we're going to head down to the river now with Ruth. We're right by the Thames, we're by the Saxon port where people would have come in. That would be their entranceway into the city with bustling boats, ships, people, spices, stones, jewels, coffee, sugar, all coming in on these massive boats. So much life would have been down here at the river. And I'm down here today with jeweller Ruth Tomlinson. So we're on the foreshore looking for garnets in particular. Ruth, Tell me, how did you start mudlarking? 
through a friend actually. She um, was talking about these mystery garnets that had been found. And she knew, obviously, I was a jeweller and I like to use antique things of historical reference and things that are recycled. But I was so intrigued about these garnets. Nobody knows why they're down the Thames, whether it was a hoard that had been dropped off a boat or whether it was supposed to be for um, abrasive material because they use it to abrade like wood and other materials um, or whether they were just dropped out of a bag when they were loading the ship but there's lots of questions about why these garnets are down the tent. So it's particularly garnets rather than any other stone? You do find other stones down here as well um, carnelian and shell like abalone and things that are remnants from old factories so over lockdown I was just really intrigued by this idea of finding my own like gems which is a bit of a dream really the fact that going to the source of and finding them um, from the river I think it's the closest thing I'll probably get to um, unearthing my own yeah sort of material because actually in Africa um Garnets are really a signal that diamonds, there is a source of diamonds nearby. Really? And they're called Cape Rubies. Ah. They've been called Cape Rubies by the miners because, you know, if you find garnet, odds on you're going to find diamonds in right. the vicinity. So ah. they're always a good sign. That's interesting. But I don't think we're going to find that today by the river. This probably <laughs> is the odd diamond ring that's been thrown in for one reason or another. But that's um, what I kind of like about the Thames it holds so many stories of sort of past and now and I sort of discovered that through this um, the mudlarking and through doing this project for my 20th anniversary so my friend took me down and showed me the ways how to look at the tides and certain areas that I might find things that might be of interest to me uh, for my jewellery because there are lots of people down here surprisingly people in knee pads because this is rocky and wet and cold and they've got backpacks probably with thermoses of coffee so it's yeah. a proper thing mudlarking isn't it? and you need to know the tides that's really important because you really don't want to get stuck down the river so oh and swim home <laughs> if you get there um, and it's obviously tied twice a day and there's only certain windows that you can get down to the Thames and get to particular areas so it's the Thames is sort of giving up these treasures for that moment in time and then if it's not found it might be gone it feels like you're really in tune with sort of nature and the city and so how many garnets have you found quite a few actually 20 30 um, good ones. And how long but did that take? That was over the course of like a couple of months. And then hunting. you set them with what? I used the materials that I found down the Thames. So I had the O'Day to the craftsperson. So that was just all garnets um, and also Tudor pins that I'd found down the river. The fact that each one of these pins had been handmade by women and girls. Um, like hundreds of years ago I found incredibly fascinating that I was the first person to probably find that pin since it was dropped 
and then I did um, the Mudlarkers ring, which was about the sense of looking and discovery. So I used the garnets mixed with gravel that I'd found in a similar area in white gold and that one I engraved on the inside I am yours so it was in, in hope someone might find it in like a few hundred years time or, because you threw it back yeah or a gift you threw to it the back river. into the river a gift to the river yeah the final ring was the time capsule ring so that was made of the found glass a Roman bead or pre-Rome bead that I'd found some old sort of rusted metal and a shell so that ring was about sort of encapsulating like time and there's so many eras that can be found down the river and is that one that's going into the V&A museum in London on show on display yeah because they wanted to take one of these rings because it encapsulated so much about the city yeah and the sort of period of lockdown I think a lot of people have been looking at and finding what's underneath your feet and what's there and having time to appreciate that. For me, mudlarking was about that because when you come and look down the foreshore, you might not necessarily see treasure or beauty. You've got to look, you know, so hard to sort of... um, to see it and to find it. And so the difference between the garnets that you found and gem quality is that they're quite small, they're, they're, they're not that sort of clear, fiery red that the, um, I think Pliny, the ancient Roman historian, um, called it little coal because it was just that fiery red. So they're not like that, no. they're darker. Some of them, yeah, they're the darker and we think we probably would have come from the East India Company. Some of them I found incredibly beautiful because of the monocrystalline form, they're the natural sort of crystal. And some of them have been broken through, sort of being tumbled in the Thames. So they're not high quality, the ones I found, almost what you call dual sort of quality, but I really loved them for their natural sort of form because, as you know, we use a lot of raw materials, raw diamonds, and how nature has just created the the, the Well, in their raw form, they have an inherent natural beauty. They just don't have that sparkle that man puts. Exactly. When they V&A find out about the project, they asked if they they loved the idea and the concept. Um, so I was asked if they could have one of the rings. Which initially I was a bit torn because I really wanted to see the project um, and you know to offer the rings back to the Thames to say thank you to nature and be a speck in the river's history, I guess. But we chatted about it and it was discussed that, you know, one of these rings will be preserved for the nation and the city and and on display in the V&A. And there will also be a reference to all the other rings that got returned into the river as well. For people, if they do found a ring in a few hundred years' time, there will be that story and record at the V&A of its little family. And what message, if someone finds it in hundreds of years' time... What message do you want them to receive from the ring? I guess um, with those rings, it's very much about a moment in time and a project and how we thought at this time um, in history. The materials that 
were found and it's got obviously it's got the date on with the hallmark and the maker's mark so it's a little fragment of uh, I guess I made the jewel and it was made in that year but I love that sense of mystery and intrigue a lot of these um, things that you find down the Thames are fragments of things that have been made and gets your imagination going you start sort of thinking creatively about what's that a part of and um, it's all quite I find it quite fascinating and I guess you know found objects and creating them with things that have are that you you find and are not being um, created or mined, it makes it the ultimate sustainable jewel. Yeah, everything that I used, all the materials were found and the gold that they were set in is all 100% like recycled from industry. So having been down on the Thames foreshore yesterday with Ruth Tomlinson, I'm now with the woman who bought mudlarking to a wide audience, indeed has made it fashionable, Um, not least with a recommendation from Hollywood A-lister Stanley Tucci, who now goes mudlarking with his son um, by Barnes, and described Lara Maitland's book as something very beautiful. It's mudlarking lost and found on the River Thames, It's also something that some of us do, he said, the nerdier ones. And it is nerdy because you find all these historical treasures, Lara, and then you trace them back, dig back into history to understand what they are and how they were used and how the people lived who used them. That's right. I I suppose it is nerdy, isn't it? It's cool nerdy, I think, I hope. I do. I find all these weird and wonderful things. And a lot of the things I find, I have no idea what they are when I first pick them up. And a lot of the joy of mudlarking, for me anyway, is is the afterlarking. It is taking it home and cleaning it up and trying to work out what it was. Speaking to people who, you know, so many really, really clever people out there. And that's the, that's the beauty of the internet is that I have access to this wonderful hive mind of people who know all sorts of weird and wonderful things and can help me find out what these objects are. And is this a peculiarly British thing because the Thames is a tidal river? Well, you can theoretically mudlark on any river. Um, Rivers have historically, wherever you are, been a a fantastic repository for rubbish. You know, we've only relatively recently had bin lorries that come around and take our rubbish away and we never see it again. We don't really think about it. Uh, Before people started to uh, send their rubbish away with the dustman, they they needed somewhere to put their waste. And very often they'd dig a hole at the end of the garden or they'd find an old pond or they'd find a river. And that's where they threw their rubbish. So rivers everywhere are full of rubbish. You throw it in, you can forget about it. It's not, you can't see it anymore. So wherever you are in the world, you will find bits and bobs. The great thing about the Thames, it is the best place in the world to mudlark simply because it's tidal. So twice a day, you can get down onto the foreshore to search it. And it's got 2000 years of of intense habitation. um, And that's the beauty about London. And so on the Seine, for instance, in Paris, which isn't tidal, also you can't get down there, can you? Because there are huge walls that prevent you. You can't. The Seine isn't tidal. So mm. if you could get down, I always say, gosh, if you could get down into the Seine, the stuff that you'd find, it would be amazing. Actually, in Amsterdam, the Amstel River, they did, um, they dammed it and they, they went down and they cleared it out when they were doing the metro line. And they found thousands and thousands of objects. There's a beautiful book called Stuff that they did. And it, all it is is just 
pages and pages and pages of the objects that they found, dating right back to prehistory, right way forwards to, to modern day credit cards and, and coins and things like that. And and also they've they've got um, an exhibition in one of the metro stations that I'm dying to go and see and I was going to go and see before we all got locked up so um so yeah in, in any river will contain all sorts of objects so anyone listening can go mudlarking but watch the tides it's obviously a bit of a science and can be very treacherous have you ever had a close shave with a tide coming in and you've been in danger I have, yes. You have to watch the tides. You have about two to three hours either side of low tide and low tide changes every day. So you have to check tide tide maps, tide tables. Uh, uh, it's very easy to lose track of what you're doing because you're so focused that you forget that the tide's coming in and there are pinch points where it, it can cut you off. And I have been cut off before at a pinch point and I thought there were stairs when there weren't and I couldn't get out and I had to wade back uh, sort of uh, well over my knees, almost up to my hips, up through very, very cold water to get back and it was terrifying. So if you do go down there, beware of the tides. Always know where you can get off access. There are ladders, there are stairs. Always know where your stairs are and take a mobile phone just in case you are that person who needs to call out the RNLI to rescue you. <laughs> and don't drop your mobile no. phone to be found in in a hundred years time for somebody no. at the bottom of the <laughs> river. Um, but what first obsessed you, Lara? When did you first go mudlarking? I, um, I've i always been obsessed with, with history, I think. It's always, for me, it's been that hands-on history, that being able to touch something that has travelled through time and having that connection with the person who once made it or owned it or scratched their initials into it. I grew up in a really old farmhouse and even touching the walls there, you've got that sense of, of history and of the past, a really, really tangible sense. Um, I was never interested in the books and the wars and the dates and the, and, and the kings and the queens that, that had nothing to do with me. And I wanted some connection with history that was more associated with me and, and my past and my people's past. Uh, and for me, it's the ordinary objects. So where I grew up, I grew up on a farm and we had a, a Victorian dump in the garden, for example. So we'd be finding stuff whenever we did the gardening. There was a medieval, old medieval abandoned village up in the top field. And whenever that was ploughed up, we could go up and pick up pottery. So I was always aware of this this sense that there there were, had been people living here before and that you could find things that they'd owned. So when I moved to London in my early 20s and 1990s, um, I was at first looking for somewhere quiet to go, to get away from all the crowds, get away from the city, to recharge. And I found the river and it was this wonderful streak of nature, this this empty space that I could go to. And I walked along beside it for many, many years. And then one day I found myself at the top of this set of rickety wooden stairs, looking down onto the foreshore. I'm, I'm wondering why I'd never been down there before. I think a lot of people who live in London don't really think about the terms and the fact that it goes up and down and might not consider that you can go down onto it. Or it's a dangerous place where you're not allowed down there. And I went down there and I found a piece of clay pipe stem. And it's we used to find them in the garden at home, so I knew what it was. And I reasoned that if that was there, there'd be more stuff there. And I went back and sure enough, every time I went, I found something different and it, it becomes obsessive. It really does. Um, and, and that was 20 years ago. I started doing that and I've been doing it ever since. And um, it's an obsession. It's an obsession and it's, it's, a, it's a passion. And I tell you what I love is what you've said in the book that so resonates with If Jules Could Talk is that you said tiniest objects tell the greatest stories. And I really believe that too, because these sort of personal things that you find, like jewels, really, you know, were worn, you know, are a direct link and a visual link and a physical link to these 
these other people who've gone before. Yeah, I mean, they're precious objects, aren't they? You know, there was something somebody loved and treasured and kept, and, and you can just imagine their disappointment when they lost them, or, or, or you know, a ring slipped off a finger, or, you know, a beautiful piece of gold fell off their off their gowns. They are very, very personal, yeah. You describe that there are two types of mudlarkers, hunters and gatherers. So can you just quickly tell us the difference and what you are? Yes, I mean, that that part of the book has been quite contentious amongst some people. Obviously, you can't generalise about everyone. But when, when I first started mudlarking, there weren't many women doing it. You know, there's lots of women doing it now. It's brilliant. Women love mudlarking. It really, I think it appeals to our gatherer nature. You never see a woman, or I have never seen a woman on the foreshore with a metal detector. It's a very different, women approach the foreshore in a very different way. And of course, there are lots of men who, who approach the foreshore in that way as well. But the fact that you don't see women with metal detectors, you rarely see them madly scraping, you don't see them digging. They approach the foreshore in a very different way, in a more methodical, a more it's a more meditative experience for most women. Um, and patient. More patient, yes. Uh, you know, I, I go down there, I I don't dig, I don't scrape, I don't use a metal detector. For me, it's about what the river has decided to deliver for me on that day. And if it's not there, then it's not there. I don't take it home. I don't find it. I don't want to kneel down and force it to give up its treasures. That's not the reason I go there. I like to see what the the river has decided to, to deliver for me because the river is a, it's a very spiritual place. I find it a very spiritual place. Mm. It's a very patient place to be. And I find it a very relaxing place to be. If I was digging and scraping and madly searching for something, I'd lose that element of relaxation and meditation so I don't want to do it like that um, and I find enough just looking on the surface because it changes every day you know it, it's eroding that's why we find so much so you don't wear these knee pads and get down and oh I do I have knee pads Dave, you do you do have knee, knee pads. pads are the only bit of equipment really I have apart from a, a very deeply unfashionable bum bag um, that are finding <laughs> harder and harder to find these days actually um, just so that I can I can work hands free. I wear gloves because there's raw sewage in the water. I have knee pads and I do kneel down just simply because I can get closer to the foreshore because then that's when you see the really tiny, tiny, tiny things. Yeah, they're hard to see from high up. Um, so I do kneel down and I do search like that. Um, but uh, but no, I don't I don't scrape. I don't move the the foreshore around to to try and find things. So is that a hunter who does that? The hunters are the ones with the metal detectors, mm -hmm. and the ones that dig holes, um, and and the gatherers are the people who just gather what they find on the foreshore. And you have gathered quite a few jeweled pieces. And you talk in your book about the garnets that we went looking at with Ruth yesterday. Um, and um, you don't know why these garnets are in the river, do you? Nobody knows. Did you find any? No, I've just, I found actually, obviously not in a very experienced eye. I found sort of old bone and a bit of shell. <laughs> <laughs> no buried treasure for me yesterday. <laughs> no, no buried treasure. You're not going to get rich from mudlarking, I tell you that much. Um, no, nobody knows why the garnets are there. There's one particular spot. I found them in about four places uh, down the tidal Thames, but there's one particular spot where you probably went today that mudlarks keep a little bit quiet. And nobody knows why they're there. There used to be an old box drain there. And I'm wondering if they came down that drain from somewhere. Garnets, as you know, are very, very hard. So it's possible they were used for some kind of industrial shop blasting or cleaning. There's another theory that, that a sack was dropped off an East India ship sometime in the 1800s. There's yet another theory that sailors would 
poke a hole in the sacks that they brought back and let a little bit dribble into the mud and then come back for them later and those are the ones they missed or that they're rejects from the jewellery trade and they were washed down a, um, a drain and out into the river. Nobody knows. There was a man who used to collect them with a pair of tweezers. And I spoke to him once and he'd worked out that about only about 10% of them are jewellery grade, jewellery quality. So, um, I mean, who knows? I don't know where they came from. I don't, that's, that's, but that's the beauty of it. You know, they're a mystery. Everyone loves a mystery. And that's not the only gem you find. You've found coral and amethyst and carnelian, haven't you? Yeah, there's another spot where you find quite a lot of carnelian chips. Um, no, again, nobody knows why. I, I would assume it's something to do with manufacturing. They were making something and this is the waste. There's another place where you find abalone shells. Uh, there was a shell warehouse on the on the foreshore. And, and I think we were there yesterday. Where, did you find some of that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the only reason I can think that that it's right in the spot where the shell warehouse was. So maybe they were sending the sweepings into the river after, at the end of the day. And that's why the broken bits of abalone are there. Um, coral. Yes, you find coral out at Wapping because that's where the trade ships from the West Indies came in. And in their, in their hulls, they had ballast. And so they'd scoop up whatever was on the island or in the place that they were they were um, filling up with cargo to balance out the ship. And when they got back to London, they'd need to rebalance the ship and sometimes shovel some of this ballast out, or they'd repair the ship and shovel the ballast out onto the foreshore. And you find great big pieces of coral that um, a lot of them have been seen. One man used to take them to the um, Natural History Museum, and they do come from the West Indies. So, so that's where they come from. So you find coral. I found jewels that have dropped out of people's um, rings and and jewelry. You know, they're cut uh, cab cabochons, mm -hmm. um, beautiful uh, cabochons. I found drilled garnet beads. They're 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 like the raw garnets, but they've been drilled and they've been drilled by hand. You can tell they've been drilled by hand drill. So very old. Yeah, very old. So um, I mean, beads are really really hard to date. Uh, because they've really changed so little over time. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, you never find what you never know what you're going to find next. You really don't. And so if you say you found your best jewel pieces, you go to look for very good, fruitful hunting grounds. So for the jewels, would that be where there was the um, a site of an old palace? Or you thought that there was a sort of big house where the rich and wealthy would be having access and might drop something? Not really, no. I mean, people say, where's the best place to go mudlarking? And really, it's, 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 it's not rocket science. You go to where it's always been busy because that's where people have been dropping things. That's where the rubbish has been dumped and the foreshore has been worked. And that's where you'll find things. And the river sorts by size and weight wherever you are. So it'll wash together the roof tiles into a great big pile. You probably noticed when you were down there and you'll get the bones in, in sort of patches and areas because they're lighter. And then you get the small metal things and they wash together in the dips and the hollows and sometimes behind old wooden posts. And you learn, the longer you do mudlock, you learn to read the foreshore and you learn to read where these things might wash up. And you get a lot of handmade pins and uh, wherever you find a patch of pins and you find an awful lot of pins and they date from between 1400 and 1800, wherever you find patches of pins, that's where you'll find the other small pieces of metal, um, the coins and the buttons. And if you're lucky, the little pieces of jewellery. And you found one particularly special bead, a chevron bead. Um which you describe as a miniature work of art. What is that? Yes, it's beautiful. I mean, I've, I, found, I found gold, I found all sorts of things, but this particular bead really was one of the most fascinating and beautiful and, and, and poignant objects I've found, simply because it, it's, it's a very old chevron bead. Uh, you can tell from the number of layers 
Um, the older ones have more layers and they made them in a mold, in a star-shaped mold. And they're these sort of stripy beads with a sort of star sort of core through them. They were made for the slave trade. So they would have been loaded onto a ship in London, taken to West Africa, swapped for uh, a, a human being um, who was then taken probably on the same ships across to the West Indies, where they were sold into slavery to grow the sugar, which was then imported back into London on the same ships. So it was this triangular trade. So it was part of this horrific trade that was going on in the 18th century. But this bead dated from probably the 17th century. So it was a very early trade bead. It was still used for that, that those sort of purposes. And it really is so, so tiny very, very collectible, worth more than in, in its weight than, than than gold. But it's not something I'd ever sell. I mean, it really is a, a beautiful piece. Um, and I found it there again, just, just searching by eye. Somebody had been digging a hole and they'd missed it because they were using a metal detector. And of course, they, things like that don't show up on metal detectors. So, uh, you know, when you're using them, you're missing all these little little things. And it was sitting on top of the um, spoil heap. <laughs> and what do you do? Where is the chevron bead? I have it in my cabinet of curiosities, which is an 18-drawer printer's chest that I bought in a junk shop which is perfect for all my stuff because most of the stuff I found is tiny I don't really bring big stuff home and uh, I've got quite quite a nice bead I do like beads they are nice to collect and you were lucky enough to find a posy ring as well can you describe that to us I did yes it's a 16th century it's made of silver and when you find silver on the foreshore, very often it's absolutely black, it's absolutely thick, especially it's old. It's very, very thick with tarnish. So it was this black ring I found on the foreshore, didn't think much of it, cleaned it up when I got home. And inscribed, inscribed is the words, I live in hope. And now early posy rings were often usually written in French. And from the 16th century, they started to write them in English. And the style of the writing is what dates it as well. So um, anything that's made of a precious metal has to, by law, be reported to the coroner and recorded as treasure. So I took it to the Museum of London. It was recorded as treasure. It was shown to the British Museum and they've got one almost exactly the same in their collection. So that's how they could date it to the 16th century. And it really is beautiful. It's quite big, either belong to a man or a woman with very fat fingers or rings, I understand, were quite big around then because people wore them over gloves. Um, so they did tend to be larger than than they are today. So yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't feel right. I mean, it's too big for me, but it kind of doesn't feel right to wear it. You do wonder if the original owner did run out of hope. I don't know. It would be a bit sad. We find lots of love love tokens in the river. Do you? Yeah, they're they're very poignant. Um, modern ones, you know, people are still throwing their wedding rings and engagement rings off bridges. Uh, that's where you'll always find the rings and the, and the love, you know, sort of things people have want to get rid of. The river's great for getting rid of things, you know. Um, so when love's lost, they lose their rings. They lose the proof of it. Seems to be the first thing that goes in the river is is the ring. Yeah, <laughs> the river, engagement ring and the wedding ring. <laughs> and you find lots of glass bottles. Do you ever find messages, love messages in the glass bottles? You do. You find some very, very personal messages in the bottles. They can feel incredibly personal because they're, again... People are throwing their demons into the river. You know, the river's constantly moving. And, uh, you know, I talk to it. It takes away my problems. And, and some people prefer to do it more tangibly by throwing their wedding rings in or writing out their problems, sticking them in a bottle and, and throwing them in. I find torn up torn up photographs, prayers, wishes, um, curses. You find all sorts of things on the river. That's amazing. And you found a Roman intaglio ring and other gold rings. Do you ever wear those? I haven't found a gold ring yet. I have found a Roman intaglio, 
Um, it's it's actually a glass one, so they made cheaper ones uh, so that everyone could afford them, I suppose. And it's got bonus the figure of bonus eventus, good outcome on it, which was uh, which is a lovely find. I've got an, a nice Roman melon bead. Um, I've got a Roman brooch. I've got a, probably my most beautiful jewellery find uh, was a gold Tudor aglet. And what's an aglet? An aglet is basically that hard bit on the end of your shoelace. So, um, you know, they're, they're made of plastic now. But uh, years ago, everybody was laced into their clothes and pinned into their clothes. That's why there's so many pins. And at the end of these these laces, they had usually just a, a, a sort of brass tube, a very ordinary brass tube. And you find lots of those. And they date right back medieval times you know the very rich people had aglets made of gold and silver and I've got a very plain silver one and I've got I found a very beautiful gold decorated one it's a sort of filigree and it was found in a certain spot where a lot of Tudor gold is coming up it's known as the mini hoard and what they think is that probably a, a there was a bag of scrap gold because all the gold that's been found is broken or squashed or, or in some way torn apart and it, it's been coming up over over the course of several years people have been finding it and the piece that I found was this beautiful filigree aglet that was squashed um, it had some the remains of some um, some glass enameling at the end and um, and so obviously it counted as treasure so I took it to the Museum of London and they're collecting as much as they can hopefully hopefully fingers crossed they're going to put on an exhibition of all these little pieces that have come up so there have been little buttons there have been more aglets there have been uh, pieces of gold chain um, gold decoration but as I say nothing's complete so it looks like somebody dropped a bag of scrap gold maybe they slipped on a, on a jetty going down to get into a boat and, and dropped it into the water and, and that was the end of that and now it's gradually resurfacing yeah well you wrote actually I thought that was such a beautiful as Stanley Tucci said a beautiful piece in this book I'm going to read it quickly so everyone can hear they might be pieces of scrap gold that were lost by a goldsmith. Perhaps he slipped on the wet planks as he scuttled down a wooden jetty to his waiting wherry and fell heavily, dropping the little leather bag of gold into the river as he landed. I imagine he plunged his hands into the cold, murky water in his panic, but to no avail. No amount of desperate searching was going to help. The gold was gone. It's so evocative, absolutely in your mind, you're drawn back to that moment yeah yeah I mean it, it goes back to you know we don't know how any of this stuff was lost you know it could have been as something as simple as you know they had reeds on the floor in a in you know in some of the palaces and the big houses maybe somebody was tasked with clearing up these reeds they'd shoveled them all up threw them into the river and at the bottom was all the pieces of gold that had dropped off people's gowns and 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 lost as you know over the years as people were dancing and, and walking across the reeds and that it, it, it got into the river that way who knows nobody knows and with your eagle eye is the gold easier to spot does it stay as fresh as the day it was made it's very it's very old gold is very pure and so it's got that lovely sort of buttery yellow richness to it and it doesn't tarnish um so when you find gold you really know you've found gold there'll be no no black on it no tarnish it comes out of the mud as perfectly as you know the day it was lost i mean the mud is anaerobic it, it, there's no oxygen in there so it does preserve everything beautifully but gold just comes out you know just you know it's gold Immaculate, yes. And I also like the other things that you find that aren't jewels, that you create and make them into jewels, 
like the flint holes, the hagstones. Yeah, I love hagstones. I mean, I, I live in Kent um, near the sea and we find them all the time down here and we collect them and you can make them into these. The hagstones are basically, well, around here, they're flint um, flint cobbles that have got holes drilled right the way through them. It's where the sea's worked its way through a softer part where there's been a, a fossil or something. And uh, and you can get these beautiful, massive beads, basically, stone beads that you can thread on to galvanise wire. And I hang them all over the garden. So, um, yeah, they're, they're very, they're, I mean, traditionally, they will protect you against witches if you hang them in your doorway <laughs> apparently <laughs> and you have lots of witches in kent <laughs> loads of them yeah loads of them so uh, none here though because we've got so many hagstones <laughs> i guess the other the, the other part of it that we have to look at is that you describe it it's quite a smelly business it's a kind of dirty smelly business that that happens down at the river doesn't it um i quite like the smell of the river it's you know it's a clean fresh river it smells nice uh, the problem with the Thames is that a lot of sewage goes into the Thames, so it often doesn't smell nice. And you really know when it's been a um, sewage release day because it smells dreadful. Um, but the smell, the river, it smells different at different times of the year. You know, in, in the sort of height of the summer, it's really very pungent. Uh, and in the winter, it, it loses its, it becomes almost so flinty, stony sort of smell. So you, it becomes very intimate being by the river. You learn it, you know, I spend a lot of time down there. So you become very familiar with it in, in, in very intimate ways. But you described opening an old beer bottle, you said it was like a smelly time capsule because it had been sitting there for maybe 100 years. It had, yes. It still had its stopper in it. So I thought I'd unscrew it with a fizz. And uh, oh, yeah, you could smell I mean, this it's very evocative, isn't it? Smells, you know, the smell of hundred-year-old beer. We find a lot of clay pipes down on the foreshore, and when you're cleaning them out, the old unsmoked tobacco floats to the top of the water, and you can collect that, you can sieve it off and dry it, and you can light it, and you can actually smell an 18th-century tavern just doing that. So you can extract smells from the river as well. And everybody smoked at one point, didn't they? Everybody smoked. It was good for you. You know, it's fashionable. It kept away the dangerous miasmas. You know, they smoked as they buried the, the, the plague victims. There are clay pipes in the, in the graves. You know, every man, woman and child was encouraged to smoke. So that's one reason there's so many of them on the foreshore. And have you noticed in the time you've been doing it any aspects of climate change along the river? Any negative aspects that are affecting the river? Do you know what? Climate change is affecting the river. It's water levels are rising by about a foot every 100 years. So in terms of actually seeing the water going higher in 20 years, I've been doing it. Not really, but what is affecting the river is erosion enormously. Uh, now, the clipper service started around 2000 and those boats have a double hull construction which creates an enormous wake and it drags out the water and throws it back onto the foreshore and every time it does that it's eroding out the riverbank of uh, the foreshore. These are the uber boats going along. That's right yeah. The taxi service. Yeah yeah and the river has got a lot busier you know it's it's people are going it's great people are going back to the river they're rediscovering the river for the longest time it was it was abandoned and ignored and a bit derelict and now people have found it again and you know there's a lot of recreation there's a lot of boats it's busy which is great but the downside of that is that we're losing a huge amount of archaeology because it's eroding away the foreshore you know rivers in their normal state they're v-shaped and we've created the river as um, especially in central london you'll see it's flat 
by the river surface, um, river walls. And that is completely artificial. It's created to create a barge beds for the flat bottom barges to sit on at low tide. And you'll see all these wooden posts and those are called revetments. And they held in all the rubbish and all the um, industrial waste and all the domestic waste and the rubble and anything they could find just to build it up into this flat surface. And then they put chalk on top to cap it down and packed it down. And if, for 200 years, 300 years, it was a working environment. You know, they looked after it. They looked after the revetments and mended them. They, they mended any holes that appeared. They haven't been doing that since the 1960s because the barges and the ships stopped coming. And so the river now is eating away at this. It's turning itself back into a natural river and it's spreading out the contents of these revetments, these barge beds. And that's why we find quite a lot of stuff. That's a lot of the stuff that we find is in, in the river, in the foreshore itself. Um, it's being speeded up by the river traffic and the fact that nobody's looking after it. And in some places, it's actually eating away underneath the river wall and you can see cracks going up the river wall. There's going to be a huge amount of maintenance work that needs to be done because nothing's being done at the moment. And you, you can see it from the foreshore, what's happening. So it's, it's a combination of rising uh, water levels and the river being busy again and nobody looking after the foreshore. Well. I guess um, let's hope some money goes into it and maybe you'll be the champion of that and draw attention for people to start thinking about it. Yes, yes. I mean, there is a great, there's a Thames Discovery Programme. Uh, they're the only non-profit organisation working on the on the River Thames trying to record all the archaeology that's washing away because it's not just the tiny things, there are big things as well washing away. And, uh, you know, they're doing their best. They're doing their best, but, you know, it's all underfunded and nobody really... We're, we're so spoiled in this country. We have so much history. I think sometimes we don't look after it as well as we should. Mm-hmm. Actually, as a journalist and writer, um, I was very interested. You had that story about um, all the metal type um, letters being thrown into the river. Yes. Can you tell us that quickly about the metal type? Because it's so. Um, it is. It, it's so <laughs> it is a great story. Yes, it's the dove's type, um, and uh, it, it it all happened in Hammersmith. There were two men that got together: Cobden Sanderson and Emery Walker. And uh, Emery Walker was a pragmatist. He was a businessman. And Cobden Sanderson, he was the creative side of everything. And they were both members of the arts and crafts movement. And in 1900, they came together and they founded the Doves Press. And they called it the Doves Press because it was right beside the Doves Pub in Hammersmith. And uh, they created this this font, which Cobden Sanderson considered to be the most beautiful font ever, ever created. It was just almost sort of quasi, he had this almost quasi-religious uh, respect for it. And um, they printed uh, a number of books, uh, very expensive books on a hand press or hand bound. They did the Bible, they did uh, the words, Wordsworth, they did Shakespeare. And it all went really well. The book sold really well until Cobden Sunson started to get a little bit too obsessed. He became impossible to work with. And Emery Walker decided he wanted out of the partnership and he wanted to take his half of the type. And Cobden Sunson couldn't bear the thought of his wonderful, beautiful, perfect type being used for anything, you know, remotely commercial. And so over the course of six months, he took a ton of lead type, almost every piece in existence, down to the river at night and threw them into the river to get rid of them so that Emery Walker couldn't get his hands on them. Every single piece he got rid of, including the matrixes and the punches that they were made from, it couldn't be used again. He died. His ashes were put into a nook at the end of his house, which overlooked the river. In 1928, a huge flood came and washed him, his ashes, into the river with his type, which is, you know, I, I like that kind of 
you know, the, the, the irony of that. Anyway, um, fast forward to the 1990s and a man called Rob Green comes along. He's a typographer and he wants to use this type and um, he tries to recreate it digitally using uh, a printed material that he's got, but he can't because when you squash metal type into squash into soft paper, it distorts. So he decides he's going to try and find the type. It must be in the river somewhere. There's a ton of it, you know. So he reads Cobden Sanders's diaries. He wrote lots of them, and they were they are if you read them, they're quite mad. You know, he really was going insane by the end. And he worked out where he thought it was. And the PLA, the Port of London Authority, who owned the, the foreshore, said they'd send in divers if he found any. And so he went down, he found a couple of people, pieces, they sent in divers, and all in all, all they found from a, from a whole ton was 160 pieces. But it was enough for him to recreate it digitally. And uh, so we've used it in the book for ju just the quotes at the beginning, because we tried to set a whole page and it just didn't look right. Uh, it is a beautiful font. It really is beautiful. And I interviewed Rob for the book, and he let slip a couple of details about where, where he went to look for the type. And I went down there myself, and I found two pieces. I found the comma at... <laughs> I found the comma and the f and i have the only comma in existence <laughs> and um yeah rob wasn't too pleased about that <laughs> but in the telling of that story you describe something that we all use every single day and we probably many people will not know the derivation of it upper and lower case that's right yes um people would there were there were two boxes or two cases that the princess when they used to set set sheets of um paper you know print they do it with these little tiny metal uh, letters and the uppercase, the big letters, would go into one case or box and the lowercase would go into another case or box. And that's where uppercase and lowercase comes from. Which we all use every yeah. day. And um, they realise. Yes. And you've now <laughs> traced that back to the river. Um, how, do you how do you decide what you keep and what you don't keep? Is it just an emotional reaction or is it by something else that you decide? Yeah, I mean, I get my hit from finding things that, you know, it's that my big hit is that moment I actually see it. I really don't want to be that crazy lady with boxes and boxes of stuff. There's only so much stuff you need. And I say that to everybody. If you go mudlarking, don't, please don't leave with bags and bags of stuff. You don't need it. You know, think about what you really need. You probably only need a couple of pipes. You only need one example of that piece of, of, of pottery. I tend to, there are some things I collect. I collect, um, 16th century book furniture. I love that. And I always keep the pieces that I find. So those are the clips and the clasps and the little metal bits from the corner. I keep I keep good versions of clay pipes. I don't have huge numbers of them. But if I find a better version, I might get rid of one and, and keep another one. So I try to keep to a limited to um, good, good examples of what, what I find and the thing, anything unusual that I don't already have and things that I collect. And I try and keep it down that way. Um, I leave a huge amount behind. I take a lot back once I've photographed it and I give quite a lot away as well. So, um, so yeah, I don't keep lots and lots. And is there anything through your research that you think might be in the river that you really would love to find in your dreams, a dream piece you're looking for? Yes, there is. I, I actually found my dream because everyone always asked me that. So I always used to say a medieval pilgrim badge because I haven't found one of those yet. And then I did find one. Um, a couple of years ago. So I ticked that off the top of my list. My top of my list now is um, I really want to find a medieval bone skate um, simply because it has that link with the frost fairs. And I find them absolutely fascinating. The fact that the, the river froze over, it was so cold, it could freeze so deep that they could lead an elephant across, which is what they did on the last one. They had horse races and, uh, you know, all sorts of games going on. They had a printing, they set up a printing press on the, on the ice 
um, for one frost. Was this Victorian? Victorian. They they had the first ones in the seventeenth uh, early seventeenth century, and they went right the way through to Victorian times until they pulled down the old bridge because old London Bridge was so fat and wide and and stopped the tides. It slowed the currents and the tides down to the point where, because it was much colder as well, the river could actually completely freeze. And uh, yeah, they had these incredible frost fairs. And to find a bone skate that was probably strapped to someone, someone's foot who was skating around at one of these incredible events would be, yeah, that's what I want to find. Well, I hope you find it. Thank you. I hope you find it. <laughs> <laughs> and any mudlarkers out there, start looking for Lara. <laughs> and if you find a little pearl ring, that could be mine. Oh. I threw it in. I gave it to the river yesterday. Oh, did you? I gave a little pearl back to the river on a little gold, so it's modern, fresh water, but I don't wear it. And I thought I'd love for someone to find it in the future. Nice, that's really nice that, you know, something other than plastic is going in from our from our generation, our day and age. Is there too much plastic that you oh, find? That's what we're leaving behind. We're the plastic age, uh, you know, that's what we're leaving behind. You know, all, all our ancestors' stuff's all organic, you know, it's going to go back to where it came from. Um, and our stuff, it's, it's all in there. You don't see it so much in the middle of London, but it's there, it's floating just under the surface. In in Ham in wet wipes in Hammersmith there are actual islands made of wet wipes now, so we're changing the geography of the river with our waste. It's it's quite depressing. That is very depressing. Note to end mm. on everyone: stop using wet wipes, stop chucking mm. plastic in the river, mm. and um, let's um, keep what we give uh, these beautiful little objects that give so much pleasure to everybody, and talk about their lives and describe how they live. And we don't want, as you say, to be the plastic people. Yes. No, quite right, yeah. Now, Lara, um, you've inspired so many people, um, as I said, you know, not least Stanley Tucci, but people do need a permit, don't they? They can't just rock up and start digging away by the river shore. Absolutely. And mudlarking is all about respect. It's respecting the river, the environment and the things that you find. So you do need a permit to mudlark legally. You can get them from the Port of London Authority. They, You can get them off their website. They're really easy to get. I think they're about £90. They last for three years. Um, but you do need a permit to go mudlarking. Please mudlark respectfully um, and, uh, you know, and enjoy yourself. Be safe as well. Be safe. So it's protected outside the Tower of London, isn't it? You can't mudlark outside mm. the Tower of London. You can't mudlark in front of the Houses of Parliament. That's a black zone so they'll point guns at you if you go there you can't go into queen hyde dock which is the oldest dock in london it's a saxon dock that's right opposite um the globe it's that little inlet and there's also the great eastern slipway out on the isle of dogs which is where i think it was the largest um metal ship uh was was launched from in the uh, 1900s and you're not allowed to mud out there. And Greenwich as well. At Greenwich, there's part of the foreshore there is is also uh, scheduled as well. And you've got to remember that the top couple of inches are ecologically the most important. It's where all the little creatures, invertebrates live and where the fish spawn as well. So if you're scraping and digging and scraping and digging, you're washing away their home constantly. And that's not good for the environment. So just use eyes only. You don't need to start digging and scraping. You'll find enough sitting on the surface if you're patient enough. You've been very patient over 20 years. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, thank you so much, Lara, and taking time to talk with us. You're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please head to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. We'd love a rating and a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts.
And please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. We're going to talk about mood-changing jewels. Given the state of the world over the past few years with pandemics, climate change, political unrest, people are gravitating towards jewellery with a deeper meaning that offers a sense of comfort, peace and protection. And I'm going to talk about that with two women, Jacqueline Raban in Los Angeles and Eche Seren in Turkey. And we're going to talk about how stones and how symbols and design can be talismanic and alter our mood. We're going to channel our inner strength and we're going to emerge with a lighter mood through our jewellery. Join me then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Woolton.